Each week, the Bible as Literature podcast brings you in-depth discussion of the biblical text in a format short enough for your morning commute, but long enough to be substantive, posing difficult questions meant to keep you engaged. If you value this work, please consider donating as little as 25 cents per episode. That's just $1 per month. To learn more, please visit patreon.com forward slash Bible. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com forward slash Bible. Thank you. Hi. This is Father Mark Bulos with the Bible as Literature podcast. In Semitic languages, the link between various words is established not by a term's imagined or abstract meaning, but by its mechanical structure. Certain words contain specific consonants in a particular order, and words built around those consonants not only sound connected, but have a related usage. For example, a book is something that is written. So the word book in Arabic sounds like the word write, but also sounds like the word office, or library, or desk, or clerk, or registration, or the exchange of letters. I could go on, but you get the point. Hebrew works in exactly the same way. In the Bible, our ability to see these connections in the original language is an absolute requirement. Without them, it is impossible to understand the Bible. In this week's episode, before jumping into a discussion of Mark chapter 15, verse 22, Richard and I take time to discuss how we use the word function to help explain the Bible and how it relates to biblical grammar. You're listening to the Bible as literature. This is Father Mark Bulos. And this is Dr. Richard Benton. And you are listening to episode 207 of the Bible as Literature podcast. Richard and I have used the term a lot on this podcast, and I don't think we've been fair to the audience. We've used it over and over again. We've stressed its importance. We've talked about one aspect of it, which is how things work, how they operate. But it's not enough. And the word I'm talking about is function. Functionality is a very important concept in the School of Biblical Studies to which Richard and I subscribe. It's critical for understanding our methodology. And so I thought, Richard, that today I'd go beyond our usual two-minute discussion of functionality to give an example that I think will help the audience to understand more clearly what we mean by function when we say that something is functional. So if you think of an SD card, An SD card is an object that can contain data. It can access data. Now, if you hold an SD card in your hand, you might argue, if you were a philosopher, that this is truly an SD card. In its essence, it's an SD card. We would say, no, right now it's a piece of plastic that's not doing anything. It's not anything in its essence. It's just a piece of plastic. But when you take this piece of plastic and you plug it into, for example, a camera, it becomes functional. It's doing something because it's plugged into the camera. In the case of the camera, when you plug it in, it pulls photos down from the camera. 
So it's doing something with the camera that's unique to that camera where the photos are stored. When you unplug it, it ceases to be functional. Now, if you then take it and plug it into an adapter for your Mac, suddenly the Mac can see the photos, but at the same time, there might be files that are on the SD card that the camera couldn't see, but the Mac can see. And the way that the SD card appears on the Mac desktop is different than the way it appeared when you plugged it into the camera because you have the same function operating in two different localities. I'm not going to say contexts because the word context, which I know all of you are running to, falls short of embodying what the word function embodies for us. I want to be clear. It's more than context. Yes, context is part of it, but there's something more going on. Again, you unplug it, it ceases to be functional. So when you have a function, for example, that's plugged into Ezekiel, it works in a certain way in Ezekiel. You see certain files or you see certain pictures. If you unplug it from Ezekiel and plug it into Matthew, you immediately recognize it as the same function, the way you would recognize that the SD card that was plugged in the phone looks just like the SD card that was plugged into the Mac. But in Matthew, it does something different. Maybe some similar things. Maybe some of the photos show up. But there are other files that are different. It looks differently in Matthew. So first and foremost, functionality is exactly what we've been saying. It's about how something works. It has to work in order to be functional. But it's also about understanding connections. Now, up until now, when Richard and I have talked about connections, we focused on the way things operate. Now, we do so by paying attention to syntax and context. Remember, context is important. It's the order of books, the order of chapters, what comes before the verse, what comes after the verse, all of that factors in. But we've only talked about function at a very generic level where we look at something obvious, an obvious similar metaphor, and we look at how it works in book A and then how it appears in book B and what it means in book B. And then suddenly the later text can draw upon examples from the earlier text because it's functional. You know that the author might actually be making this connection. But you have to go deeper than the way that you think characters in the narrative are behaving. You have to actually begin with technical connections. And that gets down to the level of terminology and grammar. And we don't do a lot of that analysis on the podcast. We typically take a leap and go to the conclusion in order to help our readers see the direction the narrative is going. But today we want to give a couple of examples and we can come back to this in future podcasts. I'm going to give an example from a Semitic language and I think Richard's going to follow on and help us understand with some examples from the English language how functionality works. Now in Semitic languages you have something called consonantal roots. It's usually two or three consonants that arranged with different vowels all mean something different but are all connected. So that, for example, when you would listen to Arabic poetry, it's not just as my father used to say when I was a kid, 
that with Arabic poetry, they have so much control over vocabulary that they can make everything rhyme and they can make everything have the same meter and the same number of syllables and the same accents. They can do all that and it's very impressive. And Richard could go on and on about Hebrew poetry. But what's more interesting for us in this example is that if the author of that poem wants to keep drawing your mind to a specific function, he doesn't have to do what we do in American movies. For example, you have a train with a light coming at you in a tunnel in the Matrix film. It means something. It represents fate. So every time you see that visual marker, you know that the author is drawing you to a discussion of fate. But that's too conceptual for biblical studies. It's too conceptual for a Semitic sacred text. So take, for example, the word in Arabic, kitab. The word kitab means book. Now, how do you say writer in Arabic? Katib. So you have kitab and katib, two different words. But anybody who hears it's going to hear the obvious connection. How about the word mektab? It means office. So you have book, kitab, writer, katib, office, mektab. You could go on. For example, kataba, he wrote. You have katabat, which is clerks. You have maktabat, which is library. Over and over and over again, kataba. You have the same consonantal root. This is powerful for writing. It's powerful for literature. But it gets more complex because there could be in Hebrew a consonantal root that connects one function to other areas of the Bible and you wouldn't pick it up from the narrative. You have to look at the grammar. Using the same analogy of having this SD card with the data that it holds, a trivial example in English, you have the letters S-H-E-E-P. I have a lovely sheep named Fluffy. Was that a singular sheep or is that a plural sheep? Anyone listening knows that it's a singular sheep. But if I say, I have many sheep in my flock, is that a singular or is that a plural? Everyone knows that it's plural. Well, how do you know? I just gave you the same five letters. I made the exact same sound. How did you know that one was singular and one was plural? Because of the words surrounding it. You have to look at it within the flow of what's happening. And take a more difficult example. You take the letters R-E-A-D. Is it read or is it read? Well, if you say, I think it's time for me to read, then we're looking at a present tense, an infinitive. Or you say, yesterday I read, then you know it was the past tense. Now what's interesting is not only do you know whether it's the present, infinitive, or past tense, you also know how to pronounce it. It's the exact same letters, but you know whether to say read or read. And if you use the example of L-E-A-D, lead, you know in the case of a verb, or led if it's in the case of a noun. So if it's occupying the space in the sentence reserved for the verb, then you know you read it as lead. If it's in a place in a sentence reserved for a noun, you say it's led. This is the way that English functions too, is you have these four letters, and they will depending on where they are plugged in, offer you a different meaning or offer you a different 
nuance, depending on what word it is. And these can be a real bummer for foreigners trying to learn English. They get caught up because they have the word, and it takes a lot of thinking and going back and forth and reading and trying to understand. And this is what happens with native English-speaking kids when you're trying to teach them how to read. Because when you're trying to teach them how to read, it's not enough to say L-E-A-D spells lead. Now, a poet could make whole sentences or whole lines using these words, lead and led, where you have to go back and forth several times before you understand it. Once you do that, then you are manipulating the reader in a particular way. The biblical authors do no less, and you find places that are very funny because you'll have the same three consonants juxtaposed in the same verse, but they're pronounced differently and mean different things, but they look the same. And so with the eye, you can make ties, and with the eye, you can even make puns because you take the same letters, and when you plug them in here or plug them in there, it's going to have different meanings. But with the sheep example, with the reed example, there's a basic concept that it's conveying, but it depends on the sentence where you find it if you're going to understand what it means here. So just because I say, I know what sheep means, sheep means an animal, blah, blah, blah. Well, no, not if it's in the context of a flock, then it means multiple, then it's in the plural. So when you read in Genesis 2, bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh, it's different than if you're reading in Ezekiel 37 and you're seeing the dry bones. Now, a bone is a bone, but how is the bone functioning in Genesis as opposed to how it's functioning in Ezekiel? The bone is a bone, but it brings different nuances. It brings different meanings depending on what is surrounding it in each of the texts where you find it. And this is really important for understanding how the Bible counteracts Hellenism. It's not just that these are two different schools of thought or two different traditions. There is an attack on Hellenistic philosophy. And Father Paul Tarazi would argue that Plato is a target in Genesis. And that's why his book, The Rise of Scripture, is so important because he lays his view out very clearly. But the point is that functionality in the Hebrew language disallows abstraction. It forces you to only consider the text syntax, context, usage of terminology. And you just keep expanding out. It goes from a consonantal root to a word surrounded by words, to words surrounded by sentences in a paragraph, to paragraphs surrounded by paragraphs. And you eventually get to something like temple in the narrative. Then you can start to see narrative function but it takes a lot of work and it's very precise. It's a way of working that disallows you to imagine something. It goes against the way the human mind works, but that's how Hebrew counteracts Hellenistic Greek. It takes a lot of effort, but our hope is that this short excursus on function would give you something to think about as we continue to work on these texts. The key is that you cannot talk about the concept of an SD card or the form of an SD card or your idea of an SD card. Are we going to talk about the photos on the SD card? Plug it into the camera so I can at least see them. It doesn't mean anything. This is why pregnancy is such an important example in Scripture. Either you bear fruit 
or you don't. God commands all orders of life in Genesis to bear fruit. In the Arabic language, virginity is not connected to the act of sexuality. Virginity is connected to the opening of the womb. You are a virgin until you've produced a child. Everything before the production of the child, everything before the opening of the womb is non-functional because it doesn't have a material impact. It's very difficult for Westerners to understand this. We used to have this in English when we had the phrase an old maid. Maid is maiden, which is a young girl. Well, you can be an 80-year-old maid. She was never married, never had babies, therefore she's an old maid. That's what it referred to. And I'm not trying to use this disparagingly. I'm just saying this is how the term was used. So we used to have this concept, but then we essentialized it to the act of having sex, and then it became a much more confusing idea. So if you think in ruthlessly practical terms, which is the way Semitic languages work, they're ruthlessly practical you realize that a shovel isn't anything unless it's used to shovel something. But you're never going to convince me that shoveling coal is the same as shoveling snow. Now, a philosopher can imagine that they're the same thing because it's imaginary. But if you deal with how things work, you deal with how they function in a specific locality, then you're starting to think like a Semite. This also is at the heart of how scripture emasculates idolatry. Because how can you talk about God in abstraction? You can't. If you talk about God in abstraction and you construct a system, you're building an idol in abstraction. The word God, Elohim, is there in the text. Now, if we're really going to be ruthless about function, can we assume that the word Elohim in the text has precisely the same meaning as, say, Yahweh Elohim? If you pair the two together, can we assume that that means the same thing as if we had Yahweh on its own or Elohim on its own? Well, if we're going to be ruthlessly functional, we cannot make that assumption. If we see that a word appears, like I said, bone, we say, oh, well, we know what bones are. Do we? Well, we know what God means. Do we? Our only reference is the text. And the text may be doing something that you're not appreciating by not paying close attention to what's happening in the surrounding area of the text and also not knowing the original languages. Elohim, God, oh, we know what that means, do you? Because in any text, it could be translated as singular or plural. It could be God or gods. And so if you aren't sensitive to what's going on in the whole context, you may be completely off in what you understand its function is here in this text. And therefore, when you come up with the concept of God, you're way off base because you didn't even understand God when it appeared in the text. There's a word, God, in your mind that you've constructed, and there's terminology in the Bible. And the purpose of studying scripture is to allow the terminology of the Bible to rewrite your brain. Otherwise, you won't hear scripture. And the idol that scripture is attacking is your version of Elohim. You have to confront and submit to the scriptural God as he functions in the text.
That's the only hope against idolatry. I disagree with every contemporary theologian who gives lectures about how all of the religions in the world construct God in the image of man. These people don't know scripture because scripture presents you with the scriptural God who goes against the way the human mind works. You cannot project an image of the scriptural God even if you try. And if you're reading the Bible and you think you can, you're being dishonest with yourself. You're not actually submitting to the text and you're making a statue. Now the statue you make will be in your image. No question. But we are submitting to the God who has no statue, as we'll discover at the end of Mark. So today on the podcast, we're going to slow it down where we would normally do maybe five verses or 10 or 15 verses. We're going to slow down and focus on one verse so that you can see the power and the versatility of functionality, but also understand that when we take huge leaps on the podcast, we're not taking leaps. We're doing the work at a technical level and giving you the best summary we can in the short time we have with you. We don't want to take five years to go through Mark on the podcast. We want to give you a reading of Mark so that you can go back and work on Mark for the rest of your life. But if we were to do an episode, you and I talked, Father, we can't do an episode and just talk about an idea. We have to talk about the biblical text. Otherwise, we just sound like the Hellenists we're accusing. Right. We could have just ended with our description of what functionality, quote, is, that dangerous philosophical notion of isness. But we're not talking about what functionality is. We're going to demonstrate how it works, how it operates in a locality. In this case, verse 22. Then they brought him to the place Golgotha, which is translated place of a skull. Now, what I want to say is that the word Golgotha is highly functional, but not for the reason that people think. Likewise, this question of the name being place of a skull is a really important feature of the verse. But here's a way in which people might jump to conclusions about narrative functionality based on extra biblical sources. Everywhere you look, when people talk about Golgotha or Calvary, they talk about it as a hill or a mountain. And we've even seen some people make leaps in their etymological analysis to prove that it's a mount of execution based on passages from Jeremiah. But the fact is, there is no biblical evidence anywhere whatsoever that Golgotha is a hill or a mount or any kind of elevation. If that's the case, people reading this verse who begin with the portraits of the crucifixion that have been popularized, of Christ surrounded by robbers on a hill. If you begin with this image in your mind, you already are beginning with your idol. And it comes into conflict with verse 22. And just to be clear, in all of the Gospels, there's no indication whatsoever that Golgotha or the Latin name Calvary from the Vulgate, there's no indication that it's a hill of any kind. 
So you cannot now jump to any conclusions about how a hill or a mound functions anywhere in scripture because this is not a hill or a mound. But it does have a function, and this is where knowledge of grammar and knowledge of the original language becomes really important for seeing the connection to understand how Golgotha functions. Before we talk about the word itself, it's funny, when you read literature very carefully, you start to notice details that are extra. Why did it say the name of the location where he was killed? Why didn't they just say they took him out to be crucified? They didn't say they led him along the street called Elm to the place of the skull. They didn't name the street. It was just a street. So they just left it a street. So why not just take him to a place where they crucify him? And then if you say, oh, well, you know, it's just the name of a place, whatever. Okay, well, if it's just the name of the place, why not just say they took him to Golgotha? Why do they have to say they took him to Golgotha, which in Hebrew is the place of the skull. Why add that? Why add a translation? There's a bunch of extra information that if you're just trying to move the action along, the plot along, if you're just trying to get Jesus crucified so that the story keeps going, you don't need all this extra information. People reading scripture have noticed that this is out of place, and so they've tried to make sense of it. Some people have tried to interpret it as a hill and it's called a skull because it's a skull-shaped hill or something like that. That's not there. It's not what it says. It doesn't say it. So if we're going to take it seriously but not read it through the imagined geography and topography of Jerusalem of the first century CE, but instead within the literary corpus that is the Bible, then it becomes much more interesting. Because when you understand Golgotha, in Hebrew, it's Gulgolet. Gulgolet. And we talked a moment ago about the importance of the roots in Semitic languages. So the root is Gimel Lamed Gimel Lamed, which is the same as in Gilgal. Gulgolet Gilgal. You can hear it. The G and the L, the G and the L that's repeated. So then once you say, oh, this sounds like Gilgal, then your head explodes. Because Gilgal is such an important place all throughout the Hebrew Bible, especially in Joshua when they enter the land, and also in the stories of Saul where Saul becomes king and there's all these events. And while Gilgal occurs everywhere, Golgotha is not Gilgal in the philosophical sense of it actually being the thing. And this is where functionality becomes really important. We're not saying that Captain Picard transported Gilgal to this scene in Mark. We're saying that there's a connection based on the terminology. And so now we have to see how Gilgal functions when it's plugged into the Gospel of Mark. Right, this is what's so cool about how literature functions. The author can take Jesus to Gilgal without taking him to Gilgal. He can just take him to a place, even if he has to make up the name of Golgotha, because then he's able to do an extra move. He's able not only to take him to Gilgal, but to the place of his death, which is represented by the skull itself. So he's able to take him to his death at Gilgal and does it all with only a short walk from the Praetorium outside the city. 
This is what's so cool about what the author can do in order to make it fit within the story, but to bring Gilgal in functionally. Gilgal is functioning here because of the tie between the words and the sounds, but it doesn't have to be there as we're talking about the philosophical bee, but literarily he appears there. Gilgal, for Joshua, is a place where covenantally he was set free from the tyranny of Egypt. And the Lord said to Joshua, this day have I rolled away the reproach of Egypt from off you, wherefore the name of the place is called Gilgal unto this day. Joshua 5.9. So this is also related to Galal or Gilgal, which is the verb meaning roll. Rolls away the reproach of Egypt from off of you, from taking you from being a non-people into being a people as you are preparing to enter the promised land. And that's why it's called Gilgal after this place where the reproach was rolled off. And now Jesus is being sent there. Now, with this fact in mind, which is one of a myriad of examples of Gilgal in the Old Testament, you now have this function in Mark being plugged in and it's plugged in, and part of it is the relationship between Mark's gospel and Paul's letters. So now you have the Messiah at Gilgal in the gospel of Mark, bringing all the nations together to create them as a people, as God's people. He's fulfilling the Torah as the Messiah, and this relates to Deuteronomy, in order to fulfill the law, he has to die because the curse of the law is death because the law is undoable without human failure because its function, the way the law works in the Old Testament, is the way the tree works in the garden in Genesis to cause you to stumble. This is why the dispute over the Lord's Prayer is so biblically illiterate because the function of the law is to cause you to fail. God leads you to fail for your own edification. So Jesus becomes the example on Golgotha from Deuteronomy of the one who's hanging on the stick for all the passers-by to see and wag their heads so that everyone would know that this is what happens to those who can't fulfill the law. So death, the curse of the law, is a big thing for Paul in Galatians, as is the gathering of the nations to the Messiah in fellowship with the people of Israel. All of this is happening around this word. So you have on Golgotha, in a way, the expansion of the covenant with Joshua at Gilgal. I'm going to roll the tyranny off your back and create you as a new people. Gilgal is the beginning of the entrance into the promised land. And the entrance into the promised land is when God removes the curse, when God allows you to enter into his land. And so Jesus has to die. It has to be the place of Jesus's death, and it has to be the place where the people are liberated from the power of death to 
serve God alone in God's kingdom. And the power of death, and this is essential because we've been talking for several chapters about the Roman Empire, about the scribes, the Pharisees, and the council. The power of death is not your fear of dying. It's not about death as a thing. That's incorrect. The power of death in scripture is technical. It's the thing that Caesar wields to control you. It's the thing that Pharaoh wields to control you. For example, the thumbs up sign was the gesture that Caesar gave when the gladiator had his blessing to kill his opponent in the arena at the end of a victory. Thumbs up meant he could be killed. Thumbs down meant you don't get my approval, you can't take his life. Which means that in that gesture, Caesar wielded the power of death. And if he gave the thumbs up, it was a reminder to all the citizens of Rome, it could be your head on the chopping block. And that's how tyrants maintain control. And that's the power that the kings of the earth think they have. And we've been stressing over and over again in Mark how the power, it does not belong to Caesar. The power belongs to God. And what distinguishes the power of Caesar, which is on loan from God, from the power of the Lord, is that the Lord has the power not only to take life, but to give life. Joshua along with Caleb, were the only ones to believe that they could enter the land and survive thanks to God's power. No one else believed except those two. They were the only two allowed to enter into the land. They had the advocacy of God as they entered the land. And lo and behold, here's Jesus who just rejected the power of, of I was going to say Pharaoh, the power of Pilate. And upon turning his back, went to Gilgal or Golgotha, however you choose to pronounce it, to begin to enter into the land. And is it a coincidence that the last person to go to Gilgal in order to conquer the land was named Joshua, which in Greek is Jesus, as we have the second Jesus here ready to conquer the land, beginning from the point of Gilgal, turning his back on Pharaoh. By allowing the law to destroy him, by submitting to scripture, and then allowing himself to be destroyed by his submission, he's placing all of his trust in his father, all of his trust that the Lord will do what he wants to do and will achieve what needs to be achieved. And it's not the power of Jesus, it's the power of his father. Right? Most of us would think, well, how can I win the victory against Rome if I die? How could Jesus win against Pilate or win against Caesar or win against his opponents in Jerusalem if he dies? But you're missing the whole point that the law was handed down to show you your weakness, to show you that you can't do it, that only the father of Jesus can do it. And that's why it's very important that you don't start imagining what happened to Jesus in the tomb. Because the resurrection in Mark is not an ascesis. It is the will of God the Father who raised Jesus from the dead. That's such an important distinction. Because in order to fulfill the law, Jesus had to become powerless. 
because the law is given to show us our weakness. I want to keep stressing this. And if the law doesn't show us our weakness, then we can't understand grace because we're trapped by entitlement. And the word Yahshua, which is another functional term, this name means the Lord's victory. It's about victory in battle. That's why the next time your Sunday school teacher says we're going to skip Joshua because it's too violent, tell them Father Mark said, read Joshua. But don't read your opinion of Joshua or your opinion of violence. Read Joshua because in Joshua there's no victory unless the Lord provides it. It won't work otherwise. And that's the point. And Jesus is showing you what Paul is saying about grace in his epistle when he becomes powerless so that his father can achieve the victory. It's like this very powerful point that Father Paul makes about David. When he was powerless as a shepherd, he was victorious because his ego didn't get in the way of God achieving the victory. When David became a king, that's when the problems began. So Jesus is demonstrating how the Messiah is God's king. It's the ultimate corrective of human kingship. Just as Joshua used Gilgal as the base camp for all of his forays to conquer the land, this is Jesus' base camp for conquering the Roman Empire. Can't wait till verse 23. I can't wait for the next verse, Father. Thanks very much, Dr. Thank you. You've just heard the Bible as literature. Thanks for listening. The Bible as Literature is a production of the Ephesus School Network.